0: This episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by our Device Talks Tuesdays virtual series. Join us this Tuesday at 4 p.m. to hear how to take the risk out of your medical device supply chain. This presentation will be brought to you by Quasar. Go to devicetalks.com to register. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salami, welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Pleased to be here with my podcast partner. Wait, this is not Chris Newmarker. This is Sean Hooley, the assistant editor of Mass Device. Sean, welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. Excited to be back. Like I said, a little, a little nervous to, to fill Chris's shoes, but we'll, we'll give it a go.
0: Well, you you crushed it last time, and uh, and I'll let everyone on the podcast on a little bit of insight. Sean and I are both uh, raised from the uh, the North Shore of Boston, so there's a pretty good chance that we'll we'll slip into some smart pot conversations at some point uh, during the podcast. Do you think you can manage that, Sean?
1: I think I would very much appreciate that.
0: <laughs> I'm sure we can we can do as bad a Boston accents as uh, John Krasinski and Chris Evans, so uh, we'll give it our best. But uh, maybe even worse. Maybe even worse. <laughs> All right. Well, without Chris and Newmarker here, we had to call upon Sean to pull together this week's. We'll still call it Newmarker's Newsmakers. Sean, is that what you want to do, or do you want your own list?
1: I, I think we'll pay pay homage to Chris by uh, keeping keeping his name.
0: I don't know. I think Foolies Wonders or something. Woo, woo, hashtag. No. Okay. We'll go with Newmarker's Newsmakers. So
1: let me let me get to five appearances before we start thinking about changing things up.
0: I think that's I think that's in your contract, right? Is that when yeah. that kicks in? Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah exactly. And all that, yeah.
0: <laughs> that and the uh, taking out all the brown MMs from the uh, from the <laughs> green room. Uh, so all right. Well what is the fifth most read article on Mass Device this week?
1: Number five is Abbott Wins emergency use authorization for its advise DX SARS C O V two IGM antibody test. It is the company said the the seventh uh, test to receive BUA wow. from the FDA throughout this uh, throughout the pandemic, um, so they've definitely been among the leaders in in getting the tests out. And uh, this one runs on its Architect and Linity platforms and detects antibodies in response to the virus. Uh, and that way, people who would test positive for antibodies are they know about a recent or prior infection, and potentially having those antibodies could mean you know protection against the disease itself, although there's still kind of more to be learned about that.
0: That's great. Well, as we've said in the past, you can't have too many of these tests, not these days anyways. So good number five. What is uh, what is number four on the New Markers Newsmakers list?
1: Number four is the U.S. Supreme Court is going to hear a challenge in the Arthrex uh, Smith & Nephew patent spat. There's a 2019 appeals court ruling uh, in the spat between the two companies and uh, the appeals court judges had found that the patent trial and appeal board judges were unconstitutionally appointed and uh, that is now being heard in the Supreme Court.
0: That's great. No, and, and it's topical too with the Supreme Court. And I actually, after seeing this, I have wanted to delve a little deeper into the, the, the spat between Arthrex and Smith and & Nephew. And it goes back, to 2004. If someone wants to go through Mass Device and find all the links to the links to the links to the articles, uh, this has been going on for a bit. And but I was a little unsure as to where this latest chapter fit into the entire story. So uh, our this is perfect timing. And honest to God, listeners, when I booked this interview, I had no idea that this would be number four. I just thought it was really interesting. But we did talk with Michael Jakes. Michael's a partner at Finnegan. He's in DC. And he's going to uh, sort of walk us through what the Supreme Court will actually be looking at, what it will be deciding, and what the impact might be on MedTech. It it has the potential to be a, a really huge have a really huge impact on MedTech, and if it decides one way or the other, uh, it could really slow things down. So let's hear from uh, Michael Jakes. He's a partner at Finnegan in Washington, D.C. This opening keynote interview is brought to you by Mass Device and Medical Design and Outsourcing. For the latest trends and news in medical device making, manufacturing, and investment, go to MassDevice.com and MedicalDesignAndOutsourcing.com. Well, Mike Jakes, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Mike, I've made a, a career of not really knowing what I'm talking about <laughs> and finding people who have answers to things I don't quite understand. And this is one of those instances where I desperately need help. Uh, we're talking about the decision of the Supreme Court to take up the uh, the Athrix Smith and Nephew ongoing case. And they're talking about something very specifically. So before I embarrass myself by trying to explain what the Supreme Court will be reviewing, I will ask you. Mike, what exactly is going on here? What will the Supreme Court be reviewing, uh, or what did they agree to review in the case between Athrex and Smith and Nephew?
2: It's an interesting question that doesn't come up that often, and it's a constitutional question, which is why the Supreme Court took it. And the question simply is: the judges on the Patent and Trial and Appeal Board were they constitutionally appointed in uh, accordance with the the appointments clause, which is in Article Two of the Constitution? And If they weren't, that invalidates uh, their decisions for the last couple of years.
0: So were these particular judges appointed any differently than judges have been appointed in the past?
2: Well, see, see, they're not, they're not judges like article three judges in the courts. Okay. Administrative patent judges. And the patent office has a particular structure and there are about 200 of them in the patent office. And they hear appeals in the patent office. They hear inter-party review, where they review the validity of the patents, and so you know there are lots of administrative judges throughout our system, whether they're in social security and they, uh, there are lots of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this particular structure is uh, set up in the patent office is called into question because under the appointments clause, the president appoints officers of the United States and then the Congress can give uh, the the president or heads of departments the authority to appoint inferior officers. Mm -hmm. So these judges, are they what they call principal officers? Are they inferior officers? And that's a fairly esoteric uh, constitutional question, (laughs) which is, uh, it's unusual that it comes up in the patent office, but it's about government structure you know it's the kind of it's civics
0: <laughs> did this administrator appoint them differently than past administrators have done is this a question of the entire uh the entire process that we've had in place or is this really a question about these particular individuals because they were appointed in a particularly different way
2: it well it's 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 more about the patent office but it has implications okay. across government which is why the supreme court's interested because if they did it wrong here it, it comes up every once in a while it came up with in the Coast Guard, it came up with a copyright royalty tribunal. You know, there it comes up every once in a while, and so here the judges are appointed by the Secretary of Commerce, and so if they're inferior officers, that's fine. If they're principal officers, then they have to be appointed by the pr- President and be confirmed by the Senate, kind of like the mm-hmm. the confirmation hearings we're seeing now. Probably not as extensive for an administrative <laughs> judge.
0: <laughs> so has this. Sort of challenge been brought up in the past, or, or perhaps it has it must be if it's been brought up to the supreme Court yeah. how, how has this challenge how has this issue been been raised in in the past and, and how has it been decided yeah
2: it, it, it comes up in uh, different contexts really depending on the structure of that particular agency um, as I mentioned it's come up when, with in the Coast Guard with the copyright royalty tribunal and i have to say that the patent office is set up i'm not sure any other administrative agencies are set up the same way Uh, it's a kind of a unique organizational structure where you have the direct Mm -hmm. and then you have a semi-independent board (laughs) uh, of of apjs of administrative patent judges so that's why i say it doesn't come up that often because usually when congress sets up a structure like this they there aren't any questions, but uh, every once in a while, the appointments clause pops up.
0: So, what is uh, what is at stake here? What is the what will could the broader impact for medtech and for other patent holders be based upon this decision, or how the how the Supremes decide?
2: Well, so there are really two contexts. One is the broader question about just government and administrative agencies. But uh, people like me, we focus on the patent law aspects of it and we're open to these patent cases that are going through the patent trial and appeal board. Uh, the The board hears a lot of cases. I mean, it's been used extensively and it's invalidated a lot of patents and it's become really a, an important part of all patent litigation. And so when I mean, take this case, for example, there's an Arthrex patent It's on Knotless Suture Securing Assembly, that's the title of it. And so Smith and Nephew filed for review of this patent to have it uh, declared invalid, and they were successful. If the board was members were unconstitutionally appointed, then that has to be done over, and Congress has to fix it. Mm-hmm. That's a really the question. And so up until the Federal Circuit's decision, which was about a year ago, there were about 100 or so decisions that were uh, vacated and sent back to be redone. And uh, those cases are just sitting there in limbo at the, at the board waiting for what the Supreme Court will do. And they'll sit there for a while longer. The, the uh, second question is since that time, the board's been continuing to handle hand down decisions that judges have. And so uh, the question then is what about those decisions since that time? Now uh, the Court of Appeals said, we can fix this problem by removing the protections for the judges. They had protection so they could be fired only for Mm cause. And the court said, we'll take that away. And then everything's fine. That's the second question in front of the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court says, no, that fix didn't work, then it puts a whole bunch of other decisions into question. And it could hobble this process for a while until Congress fixes it. Uh, That's really what's at stake. And because of this this patent trial and appeal board has become such an important part of challenging patents it would um It would turn the system on its head for at least a few years until it's fixed.
0: So I mean, we all like to make fun of Congress and its inability to to pass things, but (laughs) is this the sort of fix that maybe is done quickly? If it is decided that this needs to be fixed by Congress, is it going to involve some sort of wrangling? Do you think this would be something complicated or is it uh, kind of a slam dunk?
2: Well, at at the risk of ever predicting what Congress might do, (laughs) I will say that this is not an overly political fight, (laughs) and it's something that should be able to be fixed Mm -hmm. really depending on what kind of protections and oversight they would give to the director of the patent office over the board members. I don't think they're going to go through Senate confirmation for all 200 judges. I don't think that's realistic. So it's really how would they change the structure and the operating of the, uh, of the patent trial and appeal board. Now there are some kinds of opinions. Some people think they should be totally independent, some people think that the director should be able to exercise control over them. I think that it could be something that Congress could deal with relatively easily. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of things on Congress's plate, too.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: this might not be the most important one.
0: And, and this is, again, this would impact uh, patents overall, not not just the med tech industry, which I, I think that would be a, an important issue, right? I mean, this would be something that certainly would hamper our innovative economy if it's not fixed properly. It would.
2: Now, generally, a lot of patent owners have not liked this Patent Trial and Appeal Board, which was set up in 2012. Okay. There is some there is some uh, disagreement on whether it's been effective with a lot of big tech companies liking the, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board because they, they've been able to successfully challenge patents. Uh, in general, a lot of medical device companies depend on their patents very heavily. And so some of them have not been, uh, that enamored with the patent trial and appeal board.
0: Ah, well, this is now this gets interesting. And I I should have asked that. I mean, so 2012, this was created. What was the process before that? What was it trying to fix?
2: Sure. It was intended to fix a couple of things. One was, uh, there was a certain view that there were a lot of bad patents floating around out there. Mm -hmm. And this, uh, would give the patent office a second chance to look at those and invalidate them. It was also intended to be a cheaper alternative to litigation. Before that, if a company got sued, it could challenge the validity of the patent. And it can still do that, but this is a different avenue. It's generally cheaper than going through full-blown trial and litigation to invalidate a patent. Mm -hmm. Um, early on, you know, there were some people that called it the patent death squad. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a t-shirt uh, right there, Mike.
2: Yeah. Now, whether or not that was true, there were some people who really didn't like it because the validation rate was really high at the beginning. It, it has leveled out since then,
0: mm-hmm.
2: but you know, the, the divide split it along, split along the lines of those people who like patents and really depend heavily on them, which includes a lot of, a lot of uh, medical device companies. And other, comp- other companies that get sued a lot on patents that like this avenue as a way to cheaply and relatively easily challenge patents without having to go through a litigation in a district court and face a jury, for example.
0: So do we have a sense as to when this might be uh argued before i assume there will be arguments before the supreme court is there is there timing on this at all or are we too early to say that
2: no we can guess when it will be it hasn't been set yet the the briefs will be filed over the next few months and it will probably be february or march the argument Mm -hmm. the way things are currently set up and then a decision before the end of the term which usually ends in june
0: So what happens over the next, uh, until we have that decision? Are things just uh, in in the holding pattern?
2: That's exactly right. That's a a big impact because of the, first of all, these cases that got sent back to the patent office, there were about a hundred of them uh, that were on appeal that got sent back to be redone with a different constitutionally appointed panel. The board, the Patent Trial and Appeal Board has put those on hold while this question was pending at the Supreme Court. And so those will just, uh, those will wait. And since uh, last October, there have been another bunch of decisions, many of which are on appeal or being appealed. And I'm not sure what's going to happen with those. The Court of Appeals could wait to decide those to see what the Supreme Court does. So we could end up with a pretty good backlog of these cases from the Patent Office.
0: At what point is the PTAB brought in to make these decisions?
2: And so, um, well, in this uh, particular case, Arthrex's patent was challenged by Smith and Nephew. They filed mm-hmm. a petition in front of the PTAAB, and there's a procedure where they go through and have a hearing and introduce evidence to challenge the patent. It's going on every day. <laughs> there are hundreds of those cases.
0: But I'm putting together the timeline of, of Smith and Nephew and Arthrex. I go back to 2004. This fight's been going on for a while, it seems. Is, is this... <laughs> directly related to that patent that, that that they've been fighting over since 2004 or is this a completely new uh, battle that has just been a new chapter to this saga
2: it, I I believe it's a new chapter
0: Okay okay
2: There've been lots of skirmishes over the years and this is just uh, the latest one yeah. I
0: gotcha. So in this case then there was a challenge to a patent and it went directly that challenge went directly to PTAB. It didn't have to involve a decade and a half of litigation before getting to PTAB. It's a completely different subject. That's right. Interesting. And
2: in fact, once uh, if someone's sued on a patent, they only have a year to go to the PTAB. Okay. So they lay back to that 2004 case.
0: So if interesting, so if someone is sued on a patent now, that clock will still be ticking, even though the Supreme Court is reviewing this. Or is there some sort of some kind of? No,
2: it, uh, I believe the clock will still be ticking because yeah. that's uh, that's it. Uh, i don't I can't say what will happen to it i you know as I said this goes on every day these cases they keep churning um, through the system
0: interesting how often going up to, to the Supreme Court uh, which has been in the news lately <laughs> how often does a Supreme Court review a case like this that could have such an impact on on the med tech industry specifically
2: well so I'd put those into two categories, they're the more IP specific cases. Mm-hmm. And this report maybe takes a couple of those a year, which they have over the last few years. Uh, and those, those can have a fair amount of impact uh, depending on really what's at stake. And I look back to the case, eBay case, which uh, dealt with injunctions and that had a huge impact on all patents, but in particularly in the med tech industry. And so uh, they, they do a, a couple of cases a year. Some have wider impact than others. This one's a little different because it goes beyond patent law. Mm-hmm. And so when this issue came up, many people, including myself, we, we looked at it and said, yeah, this is, looks like a Supreme Court case because although it's uh, patent specific and all the patent uh, lawyers are going to be interested in it, it goes beyond that to just how government is set up and agencies are set up and... The Supreme Court loves
0: that stuff. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Has uh, a lot of attention has been paid to the ideological shifts of the Supreme Court in, in ways not directly related to, to medtech. Uh, but has there been a shift with the, with all the new justices coming on? Is it seen as being? Any more or less patent-friendly or IP-friendly, or, or steering one way or the other with uh, over the last five years or so?
2: Well, it's uh, I, I can't. They don't have enough cases probably to draw a straight line mm-hmm. and say it's patent patent unfriendly. Cases go both ways. There's one area which has been a of concern for a lot of people, and that's in patent eligibility, whether something can actually be eligible for a patent, or whether it's an abstract idea or relies on a law of nature. This area of the law, the Supreme Court weighed in in several cases over the last 10 years, including the uh, Inray Bilsky case, which is the one I argued in 2009. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been 10 years that kind of started this. And they've generally been hostile to patent eligibility, and what things can be patented, but it's, it's spilled over <laughs> because it's spilled over in computer software, diagnostic methods. The, uh, the medical device industry was fairly uh, distant from it, but now it's creeping into that as well, especially when you have things like uh, software as a medical device, all the health and fitness devices that are available that depend on software. Those patents are being challenged all the time, and this, over the last year, the uh, the judges on the court of appeals, as well as numerous petitions, have begged the Supreme Court to do something about this area of the law, and they have steadfastly said no. <laughs> so that one looks like it would take a congressional fix, at least at this point. And you know, patents don't always get the most attention.
0: And what would what would be the fix that they would like to see? Just sort of a clarification on on what is what could be patented or that's right. yeah
2: what what is, what is patent eligible? what is an abstract idea? Uh, there's very little clarity right now, and patents get invalidated regularly on those grounds, things that uh, ten or twenty years ago no one would have questioned.
0: And that circles back to, again to the PTAB. That were they the ones who would do the invalidation of, of at least some of those patents, correct?
2: They did They did some. That's not their main focus. The PTAB had um, the ability to examine business method patents mm-hmm. for the last eight years. That was part of the American Invents Act when it was set up. And that was a special provision that allowed them to look at covered business methods. Generally, that didn't affect the, the medtech industry. Um, it was more financial institutions and the financial patents. That was an eight-year experiment that has sunsetted. Uh, there's some talk about bringing it back.
0: Interesting. Wow, this is uh, this is going to be interesting to watch. I mean, this really, it, it kind of snuck under the radar, but it sounds as if uh, this could have a really wide impact on, uh, on the medtech industry.
2: Well, it could... Uh, Greatly upset the Apple card on patent law, depending on what they do. Since the medical device companies so much depend on their patents, they watch this very closely.
0: And, and final question: What uh, what was it like uh, arguing a case in front of uh, in front of the Supreme Court in 2009? Is it a thrill?
2: It was a thrill. It was it was great. I was uh, I, I I didn't win.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> as, uh, as one of my uh, partners said, uh, you know, when they ask you how did you do I said well I lost nine zero and they asked why did that happen as well there were only nine of them
0: so. <laughs> uh, um, at least you came you know, in some second. people
2: didn't somebody some people didn't consider it so much of, of a loss because it did clarify the law but it sort of started us down this path on patent eligibility that uh, has led us to where we are today uh you know it's a it's a fantastic experience for any lawyer I do a lot of them arguments in the Court of Appeals, mm-hmm. but to the Supreme Court is a kind of a career thing for people like me.
0: That's very cool. Excellent, Mike. Well, thank you for providing some clarity on a, on a, a cloudy situation, and uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast.
2: Yeah, it's great talking to you.
0: All right. Well, it was great to hear from uh, Michael Jakes of Finnegan on that one and uh, provided some clarity to what is a, a really kind of a, for me anyway, <laughs> confusing, confusing issue. But uh, uh, I'm sure it's one that we're all going to be hearing about going forward. And just so it goes to show the importance of the Supreme Court like we needed to be reminded of that these days. But uh, all right, Sean, lay us on, lay number three on us. What's the third most read article on mass device of this week?
1: Number three is the FDA clears GE Healthcare's AI-powered cardiovascular ultrasound system. It's 510k clearance for the Ultra Edition package on its vivid cardiovascular ultrasound systems. New features, essentially, that are based on AI, and they're supposed to allow clinicians to acquire faster, more repeatable exams on a consistent basis. I think it's just uh, AI, I think, always Garners a little bit of interest, and this is just another kind of advancement in the in the technology.
0: Definitely continuing continuing to see more and more of it mentioned. I know it was uh, brought up on the uh, it's one of the partnerships that Medtronic had put together. And uh certainly it certainly seems to be making the list on a on a routine basis. So that's uh that's a super solid number three. All right, let's uh let's start to bring it home. What is the the second most read article on Mass Device this week?
1: This is where it gets uh top heavy towards Medtronic. <laughs>
0: Here we go again. Medtronic making news.
1: Number two, Medtronic launches a head-to-head Taver T A V R study against Edwards. Uh they'll be conducting a randomized head-to-head study comparing their transcatheter aortic valve replacement TAVR systems uh, in patients with symptomatic aortic stenosis, primarily women. The trial is comparing Medtronic's Evolute Pro and Pro Plus systems against Edwards' uh, balloon-expandable Sapien 3 and Sapien 3 Ultra transcatheter heart valves. So two of the kind of titans of TAVR, I guess. Uh, going
0: at it look at you with the alliteration in the headline writing titans of taver i like it
1: i'm starting starting to become a podcaster.
0: <laughs> clash of the taver titans let's 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 Copyright that one before someone steals it. All right, well, that's a great number two. All right, that was uh, that was mentioned during uh, Medtronic's Analyst Day, which uh, which was really I thought uh, I know you sat through the whole thing. I haven't seen all the presentations by the uh, the division leaders, but uh, what would you think about the the Analyst Day Investor Day video extravaganza? Uh,
1: it was from Medtronic's perspective quite optimistic. Uh, I think the CEO Jeff Martha he, I think he even said in response to one of the analyst questions, he said, because it's virtual, he can't quite tell the reaction he's getting, but on his side of the camera, it, it felt, uh, it felt very positive. And they're, they're, uh, they're basically they're, they're going all out. Uh, as they said, they're going on the offensive. So uh, they were definitely not hiding that, I guess, in their, in their presentations, they were showing all the plans they have and the restructuring and all that There. They're excited about what's to come.
0: Yeah, so that was a great catch too by you on the on that call. I remember that answer, and, and it's true when you're kind of speaking to a microphone into a computer or a camera, you don't know what the response is and if people are uh, feeling the energy that you're trying to deliver. And uh, and clearly, uh, the analyst picked up on the, the very confident tone that uh, Jeff Martha and the executive team was putting forth. So and I and I really liked I liked the way they presented. I hope more companies kind of do that with with uh, video and, and and audio presentations. I think it's just it's a lot more comprehensive and a lot more easier to grasp at least for me uh, than just a, a straight phone call so uh, good for them for, for putting it together, or I guess for an in-person meeting if they're not gonna if we're not gonna go back to in-person meetings anytime soon I hope more companies uh, do their analyst days this way because I think it uh, benefits everybody all right so this is the big one the big number one and uh, it was written by some uh, scrappy upstart on the mass device editorial team wasn't it
1: it was uh, mass devices scrappy upstart uh, editorial team member and scrappy upstart podcaster. What did you write Sean Hooli? It was number one is a headline Medtronic CEO, Jeff Martha says it's time to be bold and add grit. Uh, it's related to the company's investor day that we just talked about where Martha, as I said, talked about their kind of plans for a new Medtronic, uh, they talked about their restructuring uh, plans, which they expect to save them anywhere from $450 million to $475 million by 2023. And yeah, Martha basically said they want to be bold and add grit into the organization, and that should lead to accelerated go- growth, which would create a lot of value for the company's shareholders. And this was all part of their presentations in which they shared plenty of news, including the number two new, uh article that we just talked about with the Taver, mm-hmm. the news about surgical robotics, diabetes, and, and all, all sorts of things.
0: And that was written by our colleague, Nancy Nancy Crotty. So yeah, no Medtronic uh, topped the list again. And uh, I was able to uh, circle back with Kayla Crum. Kayla is a managing director at Truer Securities. We talked after Medtronic's last analyst call, which was also done on video. And uh, this was sort of a part, I guess, the second part of, of their video presentation. And uh, if you can't Catch the full presentation. I do recommend you check out Sean's story on Mass Device. He did a great job with with the write up, it was very comprehensive. And uh, you can find that on MassDevice.com. And of course, let's listen to uh, Kayla Crumb, Managing Director at Truist Securities, for her take on the conversation. This closing keynote conversation is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays on-demand sessions. Go to devicetalks.com to register for these free, informative conversations led by 3M, Locust Robotics, Avail Med Systems, and many more. Go to devicetalks.com. Okay, LaCrum, welcome back to the podcast.
3: It's great to be back. Thanks for having me.
0: I feel like we should be calling you our, our Medtronic correspondent or something. This is the second time you've been on following one of their calls, but uh, they've both been uh, so super interesting. I think they were they were uh, definitely worthy of follow up. What did you think, first of all, of, of Analyst Day? The way that uh, Medtronic laid it out, yes, uh, this week it was. Uh, really well done and really sharp with the videos. And I'll admit, I probably tapped my toes a little bit when they were playing their little theme music there and, and running some graphics.
3: I mean, what what a unique format, right? And I think <laughs> that the company <laughs> pulled it off pretty seamlessly. You know, there, there's, there really is like an energy that just feels very different there as compared to prior years. So yeah, it, it was really great to see.
0: Now I was curious you're looking at this probably well, definitely through a different lens than I am you're looking for data you're looking for data points at the end of the day when all the flashing lights are done are you did you feel like you got all the substance you did from uh, from a typical kind of call all the material all the numbers you need all the all the guidance from the company
3: after, you know, five, seven hours of a, of, an, of an analyst day, <laughs> it was a lot of content, um, a lot of content. But, you know, I do think that the company had a lot to talk about and. You know, you have this large, you know, thirty billion dollar revenue company, um, and you know, I, I think that Jeff, this is really his first time, you know, stepping in and and uh, you know, framing up the the business. So yes, I think it was a really good and productive meeting.
0: So let's get right into it. Uh, it was uh, again. When we talked last, there was discussion about Medtronic being nimble and moving quicker. And that sounds great. Uh, and it's something that companies, I think, will say. But yesterday, they really kind of laid out their plan. They're going to turn a $30 billion company into $21.5 billion companies, whatever the math was. And they had a slide identifying each of the little individual business units that would, that would be running under the Medtronic name. Uh, it was very explicit. It was very detailed and uh, in the call, Jeff sort of got into the details as to how they came together. What do you think of uh, of the way they've laid out? Do you see... Uh, this working, effectively having so many different entities, uh, I guess, working under the Medtronic name.
3: You kind of hit on it spot on. You have this large, you know, $30 billion revenue company. And as we see with a lot of, of companies, as they scale, it gets harder to grow and, you know, things get more bureaucratic and so innovation slows. And so the goal, you know, with decentralization is really to, to empower their business leaders and push decision-making and, and that tactical strategy Downward, and I mean, essentially, those business units can then operate like small companies on, under the Medtronic umbrella. Um, and so there was also, you know, a change in terms of, of incentivizing these leaders on growth and market share goals. And mm-hmm. remember, I mean, Jeff did all of this in the RTG business. I mean, he he turned around that segment with this strategy. Um, so now it's just taking those building blocks and, and doing it company wide.
0: And that was your question, which I which I thought was a good one. Just was RTG really a model? And, and Jeff kind of Jeff Martha kind of demurred a bit and said, "Well, we've got smarter people in the room now. This is this that might have been an inspiration, but this is this is more than that." But tracking what they were able to do with RTG is there. As, is there a more direct parallel than Jeff Martha was willing to say? And if there is, what does that parallel say about the path forward for Medtronic?
3: No, I I, I do think that RTG is is a good one. It was a business that, you know, for years had had some volatility in, in performance and, you know, categories within RTG, like, you know, Spine, it was a market that Medtronic has owned and yet has really kind of uh, had taken a step back in terms of of innovation, and all of these small companies kind of stepped up and 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 competed really effectively against them. And so, you know, I think that what we're seeing now is is you know Jeff is trying to basically push decision making across um, the organization, pushing it downward and. That will give you know him and, and and the executive team more time to focus on just the big picture and, and driving that that mid single digit growth across the business.
0: Does that generally, in your opinion, work? Giving more authority to the 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 people down below. Does it? I mean, obviously, it creates opportunities for disconnect between upper management and lower upper management. I guess looking at across the industry, maybe across other, other companies, how does that typically play out?
3: Yeah, I mean we've seen other med tech companies implement this strategy and, and, and do it effectively. Um, so I think that the plan makes a lot of sense. You know, you look at, at companies like Stryker and, and Boston Scientific that, you know, to be fair, there are differences in, in terms of the end markets that Medtronic plays in versus some of the other companies. Um, but you know, the growth rates are are uh, are pretty different. And so, you know, I think that the argument that Jeff uh, um, had stated at the end of the call was, you know, essentially they have to grow or should be growing at least in line with their end markets in that mid-single digit range. And again, if they implement this strategy right, in my opinion, they, they can grow faster than that. So I think that's the goal going forward.
0: That's great. And one thing that I thought was interesting was, I mean, when Jeff Martha came on and he was Pushing for all these changes, it was kind of surprising given that he was so close with Omars Schrock. rock that, that, you know, it essentially would say we need to do things differently than we've been doing before. we talked about this the last time, but in the call, he mentioned that, that some of this at least is inspired from the pandemic and their realization that they can function just as well separately, or they can function well separately rather than being together all the time making joint decisions all the time i thought that was a really interesting statement
3: no i i agree and i you can tell you know through through these challenging times the companies that are coming together and investing in their business and as medtronic has even with its its sales team you know stepping up and making sure that the folks are compensated during this this challenging time i mean that really brings together a company and 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 the culture uh through a difficult time
0: we are seeing. You mentioned Stryker is another company that, uh, that has mentioned changes from the pandemic. Are you hearing this from others on the call? That hey, you know, we, we we've learned that we're we're able to do things a bit differently, and we're making adjustments because of how we've had to operate the past six months.
3: Yes, absolutely. Across our companies, all of our companies have had to to adjust to innovate how they're connecting with their customers. I mean, you know, surgeons. There are surgeons who won't, you know, wouldn't allow. Their sales reps into an operating room, which mm-hmm. is pretty typical in, in a lot of procedures, and so you, they they have had to get creative um, both in building markets and also in uh, in communicating internally.
0: Two more things. Uh, one is culture. So Jeff spoke directly to how they're cultivating this new culture, the enthusiasm, the confidence, the, the grit they're looking for. And he also sounded like he was going to hold people accountable. And I think you alluded to this earlier where he said you can make your numbers, but if you don't make your growth numbers, then we have to have a conversation. And he also at some point said if people aren't able to follow along with this philosophy that he even used the word cancer, which is a strong word to use. Were you surprised by sort of the directness to the workforce as to what he's expecting from Mechatronic personnel?
3: I think it's definitely it definitely puts higher expectations on those business leaders, and it it pushes those business leaders to uh, to really look and understand the the markets that they go after. Um, and I think if the company is allowed to. Uh, and can act as sort of again twenty different smaller companies with that focus, with those insights into the competitive dynamics. Um, the company is gonna is going to be able to accelerate growth, in in my opinion.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. And you're right. If you're going to have these disparate organizations sort of operating on one, if you have those numbers to adhere to, that really kind of, you're, you know what your expectations are. So it, there's no, no there's less opportunity for miscommunication.
3: No, no people follow incentives. Exactly. <laughs>
0: final question or, or final point. The uh, I'm continuing to love the the partnerships, the outside partnerships. We had the one, Blackstone, that we talked about. Uh, now they, they talked about the half moon and the foundry who they're working with on, on, on Mitral Valve. I mean, it is... Jeff suggested this that it's very much a, a pharma model. Uh, where do you see? What do you think of these out, these partnerships with outside groups? How the, how does that fit into Medtronic today? And and do you see a future for for more of these?
3: Yeah, this, I mean both of these are super cool. I mean Medtronic plays in the gastrointestinal market today, and you know they've been focused on improving a lot of the dynamics in in that market and in, in colon cancer uh, diagnostics. They developed this product called the Pill Cam Genius, which they talked about. I mean it's essentially a, a swallowable colonoscopy, um, and they mentioned that you know they're they're going to partner with Amazon to bring it to market, and that'll allow. Basically, Medtronic to to leverage the Amazon delivery network, their customer base. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of creativity around that partnership um, that should allow them to disrupt the market. And then, you know, with the Foundry, uh, which is a medical device incubator company, um, you know, they entered into this partnership to develop uh, a transcatheter mitral repair technology. And it's it's also just a really creative way to extend their R&D capabilities and and it allows Medtronic to make, you know, structured investments over time um, and ultimately potentially acquire that company. So, you know, both of these are really creative solutions. And I do think that you know, you're not going to see these kind of typical kind of acquisitions or, or, or deals. You may see more and more of these structured, interesting partnerships, um, which I think is, uh, is really creative on, on the company's part.
0: And I completely forgot to mention the, the Amazon connection. Can you give us a little more information on, on the plan for the pill and, and why they'd be working through Amazon? I mean, it sounds like a, a great way to go directly to consumer.
3: Yeah, it's very, it is. It's very different. I mean, you know, uh, they did develop the, the PillCam Genius. I mean, basically it's an at-home treatment uh, or, or, you know, swallowable colonoscopy. And they're trying to address the fact that a lot of patients, in a lot of cases, avoid screening for colon cancer for a lot of different reasons. Um, so there is a lot of creativity around, around this partnership. And you know, the pivotal trial for this product, it's expected to start in fiscal 2022. You know, they're expecting uh, to potentially, you know, submit in, in fiscal 2023. So, you know, it, it's not too far away. Mm-hmm. But again, th- these are really interesting strategies.
0: That's great. And the Foundry w- was an interesting point as well. I mean, that, and I love the 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 sort of callback because the Foundry was the company that created Ardian, which was mentioned several times throughout the program as well. So it's uh, it's great to see those two companies working so closely together. Well, it was a great call. Appreciate you taking a few minutes and sharing some, some insights on on where Medtronic is going. And uh, it's great to have you on the podcast.
3: Of course. Yes, of course. Anytime, Tom, it was great to catch up with you.
0: All right, it was great to have Kayla Crum back on the podcast. I'm sure we'll have her uh, on again to talk about uh, many companies in medtech. All right, and that's a, that's a wrap for this episode. Sean Hooley did a great job uh, filling in for the man, Chris Newmarker. Uh, you, I believe, are also uh, finding your way onto social media land. So how can people find you on uh, on LinkedIn?
1: You can connect with me at Sean Hooley, S-E-A-N-W-H-O-O-L-E-Y on LinkedIn, I'm welcoming all connections, trying to to grow my network as wide as possible. Um, And then I'm also on Twitter. You can follow me at Sean, S-E-A-N-W-H-O-O-L-E-Y-W-T-W-H. That is my Twitter handle. Uh, Feel free to to shoot me a follow there. I'm still kind of working my way into getting posts up on on my accounts there, but we'll get there.
0: Well, Sean's writing some great stuff for, for mass device. So I definitely uh, advise people to connect with him on LinkedIn and Twitter. And uh, I don't know, are you on the gram? What else are your kids on these days? Are you TikToking Sean?
1: I am not TikToking, but uh, (laughs) if if I get enough, you know, if if people want me to start TikToking, you know, maybe, maybe get some med tech devices to try at home and do some, do some TikToks with them.
0: There we go. We'll do an, an unboxing. (laughs) of a titanium hip implant. Anyway, all right, I'll stop being an idiot and I'll tell everyone they can find me on LinkedIn. I am uh, Tom Salemi. I'm also on Twitter at MedTechTom. And uh, it would be great to connect with you there. uh, If you would be so kind as to uh, share, the details of this podcast on your own social media connections let folks know that we're putting together the device talks weekly podcast every week and bringing you i hope great insights and great interviews from uh, from the leaders in medtech you do share the this podcast uh please do uh tag sean and chris and myself we'd love to be part of these conversations and uh, finally, please do subscribe. We post this every Friday uh, on on our, our channels. It goes out to our subscribers on Friday. We'll then put it up on Mass Device and MDO in the days that follow. But if you really want to be one of the first people to hear this or at least have that opportunity, the best thing to do is subscribe. So go on your podcast player, push the subscribe button, and uh, you'll get this podcast delivered directly to you so all right well that's a wrap sean Woolley, great job today filling in for chris newmarker
1: thank you very much tom appreciate it
0: and uh we went through an entire episode without uh doing one crappy boston accent so good for us
1: next time all right
0: folks thanks again tune in next week we'll have another great episode of the device talks weekly podcast waiting for you
2: The Sonata. Let me pack it. Oh, you're not fitting your car in there, Chris.
1: Stop being yes. a smarty mess, all right? Look who's got smart pack.